Welcome to Going Off the Record. I'm Colin Williams, and this is where I talk with the executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and changemakers working to make this world a little bit better every day. You'll hear their true stories, their failures, their successes, and most importantly, you'll learn what makes them tick. So let's get going off the record. I'm very excited about this one. We're here with Amanda Lannert, the CEO of Jelly Vision. She can explain, I'll let her explain all about what Jelly Vision does. I already know. Um, but for those of you out there who don't, I'll let her talk about it. So thanks, Amanda. Thanks for coming on. I have a few just very basic ground rules for what we're going to do. The first one is don't breach any confidentiality. I am a lawyer by trade. So <laughs> it's free. you're free to use people's names unless they don't want you to. Don't want anybody coming back after me. So second, this is candid. It's about being yourself. I use lots of four-letter words. I will continue to use them during this podcast because that's who I am. And beyond that, there's no rules. This is all about learning about you, being candid, going off the record, and telling everybody what's happened in your career, what you've experienced, and what advice you can pass on. So thanks for being here. I am delighted to be here. And just for the record, in terms of being candid, I will be honest. I don't know if I'll be like wildly interesting, but <laughs> let's, like, let's go for it. We'll see. That was a pretty big setup, but uh, thanks for having me, Colin. No, 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 of course. And, and yeah, this is you will be interesting, I promise, because you're always interesting. But yeah, just for people who don't know, if you can just explain a little bit. Actually, it'd be fun to hear the whole story of the evolution of Jelly Vision, because, you know, I know from being a gaming and Alex and everything else that's happened to where you guys are today, uh, I think it'd, it'd be good to tell everybody how sort of Jelly Vision has evolved from day one to where it is. Yeah, it's been quite the roller coaster. I joined over 20 years ago as marketer for a company that was at the height of its gaming days. We made games like You Don't Know Jack, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and many, many other games, including games that were on TV. But our bread and butter were games on these things called CD-ROMs that you would slide into a computer held data. I remember those. <laughs> yeah. The gaming company I joined was so amazing that the caliber of writers just out of this world, the comedians that were drawn to Jelly Vision in Chicago, people like Mike Brom and Sarah Silverman, who went on to become respectively the head writers of the Colbert Report and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, like that's what I joined. But when the CD-ROM market died, and it died very quickly, the price points of CD-ROMs went from $30 to 20 to 10 to 5 in about 18 months, thanks to this thing called the internet. Um, <laughs> so to <laughs> yeah, when, when CD-ROMs died, so did our gaming business because everything was moving online and there was no way to finance them yet. And then the dot-com bubble burst and there was no way to fundraise to sort of bridge. So we went through a pretty big pivot that involved me writing a severance letter from myself to myself. And I actually had the unique uh, dishonor of laying myself off among almost everybody else in the company. But we did it well enough and early enough, not well enough, you don't do layoffs well, but I mean, it was a pretty big collapse of a whole industry. A skeleton crew of people were able to continue on behind the idea of a revamp. We're no longer going to create virtual game show hosts in a B2C gaming space. Instead, we're going to create virtual advisors in a B2B enterprise space. We're going to go to where there's furrowed brow, where people are trying to do something complicated and boring, but important, financially so, and we'll talk you through it. Yep. We spent the first 10 years, I rejoined the company. So Harry Gottlieb, the founder, pulls off a miracle, raises $1.6 million post-bubble bursting, post 9-11, like probably the only capital that was raised during that incredibly weird time. And I rejoined the company on January 1, 2022, and we're off to the races. So new mission, new capital, new lease on life. And we proceed to spend the better part of a decade, about seven years, going sideways. 
never getting traction, but just managing to not run out of money, despite a few more near-death experiences, where we went from being a gaming company where we learned how to entertain to being an agency where we learned how to persuade. We learned how to give people recommendations and build trust and build authority and build credibility. And so we finally landed on something called Alex. And you do want to talk about where there's furrowed brow, where something's complicated and boring, but important. Boy, does health insurance fit the bill. So we make Alex. It's a, a SaaS platform we license to mostly large employers to help them help their employees choose and use their benefits. We live in a world right now where Ford spends more money per car on health insurance than steel, and Starbucks spends more on insurance than coffee beans. Yet one in four of their employees would rather be placed on hold or clean a toilet than think about benefits, which is why a company known for gaming, for creating things that get people to pay attention and maintain engagement, became a persuasion company where all we're selling is math so that employees understand, appreciate, and take better actions around their benefits. And funny enough, if you save employees a bunch of money, you save their employers money too. So we went from gaming to agency where we did all kinds of weird projects to ultimately being an HR tech company that helps everybody reduce the cost of confusion around health insurance. Yeah, I I always think of like the open enrollment time where you just go, shit, (laughs) I need to figure out the difference between these PPOs and this, and I just don't. I don't want to deal with this. Like, I there, know I shouldn't have any smell. No other industry where you can take a product, name it based on its most terrifying feature, and expect it to be successful. But seriously, there's a product called the high deductible plan. What it yeah. is, in fact, is the low premium plan, but let's just like yeah. call it high deductible. Like, who wants a high deductible? Literally nobody. <laughs> but it tends to be the cheaper for an awful lot of people on an annualized out of pocket cost basis. So, We're in the world of EAPs and HRAs and HSAs and FSAs. I mean, it's like maybe if the industry just did a better job of naming, we'd have less of a business, but we have to come in and explain all this stuff that just seems unnecessarily complicated and makes a lot of brains want to shut down. But it basically wizardizes everything, right? And walks you through the process and you have like the little assistant telling you this is what, if you're looking for X, you should do Y. Like, I mean, it sounds like such a simple concept, but anybody who's been through open enrollment will sit there and go, thank you, God. Like, I just can't stand this shit. And I don't understand it. I don't want to spend a bunch of time doing it. And I don't want to learn the descriptions of every single one of these plans and everything they can do. And what are the exemptions and FSAs and blah, blah, fucking blah. And you're just like, I can't take this. So just having the ability to cruise through it and say, this makes sense. And I can choose something that fits for my family. It sounds simple, but the best ideas are the simple ones. Yeah, that's very much our why. We basically simulate a conversation between a robot behind the screen that feels incredibly human and helpful and the user sitting in front of it, where we, you don't have to know insurance. You just have to know your needs. Right. We know all your plans, all the eligibility, all that garbage. And all we do is we are doing the mapping and then we show you the math and the implications of how each plan works. So we truly are just incented for you to do what's best for you. Yeah. And our why is very much in the comments. It's people who are like, I hate this stuff. I don't want to do it to... My husband just died. This is the first time I ever had to do this myself. I don't know if I would have gotten through it without Alex. And that's the why for us. We can save families thousands and thousands of dollars a year. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. So that's the other. Did you ever get to meet Sarah Silverman? Did you hang out with her? No, but Mike Mike Brum, I did. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just written a kid's book. He's like, it's really fun. There are like famous people. Nate Fernald, who is a regular on Late Night. He's a writer, I think, for Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. He used to be my intern. 
Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> for me. And I'm like, Nathan intern is like a famous guy right now. And by the way, he was every bit as talented and hilarious. Like it was always ridiculous that no, he was an him. intern yeah. and an assistant. He's an amazing guy. So truly the theme of Jelly Vision is the most amazing people. Yeah. Deeply, deeply talented and interesting people come and do their day jobs and then they do improv at night or theater or just are incredible people. But like, boy, have we crossed paths with some amazing, amazing humans. Well, and that's the culture you built though, right? Like, because what I think is interesting is that you've also created a place where people can feel free to go do those things and do experiment outside of life, outside of work and do other things in their life. And I've been at businesses where that's not okay. I was at a business, will not be named. But you actually actually had to disclose whether or not you were in a band, because hypothetically, if you've gotten paid in that band, that's somehow a conflict of interest with what I'm doing every day, which makes zero sense, right? I'm not allowed to do that in my free time. And it was a fireable offense to not disclose the fact that you were doing something on the side, regardless if it had nothing to do with your day job. That's scary shit. I would say... There's a corporate band at Jellyvision where it's like the Jellyvision band where employees yeah. join and put on every holiday party and you know a couple other events a year. And what's not surprising is that we have a band. What's surprising is that about 10% of the company are actually professional grade musicians. Yeah. And it's not just the band of coworkers. They're really flipping good. Yeah. And you see like your accountant on base and you're just like, what? But that, that's like the magic of it. Like everyone is actually interesting and interested if you just give them enough time. And it's just like people have ridiculous talent. Yeah. Or at least a jelly vision. Everyone at jelly vision, I'm always like sort of dazzled, but the band rocks and we encourage it. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you at Reverb, our holiday party was epic because David would rent out either um, Talia Hall or Lincoln Hall. And then it was just like 35 bands playing that people just threw together, but right. The entire 90% of the company were musicians and like good musicians. And so this was, it was the coolest thing to see people get up and do their thing. And you're like, wow, I, I had no idea that, you know, Joe and customer service was like a professional level guitar player. And then you see it like, this is pretty neat. It's, it's a good yeah, culture. I've seen the clips of Cult on stage. And one of the best things about <laughs> it is it's not the C-suite. You know, I've been asked, can you play an instrument? I'm like, not well enough for the band. Can yeah. you sing? Absolutely no. Can you rap? No, it's not about <laughs> me. Like, I, I have nothing to contribute other than being a fangirl. So please leave me out of it. I don't, I, it's like going on. Am I interesting? Like I'm a deeply untalented person for as lucky as I am. I mean, it's just like God's honest truth. I can't do anything. I can't, no, no artistic talent. My brother is a Grammy award-winning country music producer. And I really say he sucked all the talent out of the gene pool. He's one of those guys, I've seen him do it. He walked up to a standing harp, a harp. Standing harp? And he just like, he, he like starts to run his hands through. And he's like listening and listening. And like the guy just like figures out how to play a harp. And I was like, you suck. You should have shared a little bit of that with me. That's like legitimately the most difficult instrument to play. Like, I, well, I watched him like, do it. And he's like everything. He's just always like tinkering on instruments. He can play, he can play anything. He's one of those people. Well, this is a perfect foray then to learning about you growing up and your family and where you're from and all that stuff. So yeah, tell us where you're from what life was like growing up, how your parents were, how you were melded into the person that you are. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of an interesting story. I would say I'm deeply influenced by my parents. My mom was born in Connellsville, Pennsylvania, which was a dead coal mining town. She was the daughter of a 15-year-old who got pregnant, and she scraped and scrapped her way out of poverty 
to becoming the first family member to go to college. And she actually ended up in New York in nursing school, which is where she met my dad, who was the son of a judge uh, and a lawyer who owned his own law firm in Talladega, Alabama. (laughs) No, I know, I know. But like my my dad went to med school, you know, very much the son of a a not super well-to-do, but like well-established Southern family. They met in New York and married. And so between the two of them, my dad having expectations of academic prowess, his grandmother had gone to college, right? My grandmother went to college in what, the 30s? Then my mom who like scraped and scrapped for it. So there were expectations on all of the kids that we would be traveled and cultured and studied and that academic achievement was the expectation because it's what you did or it's because what my mom worked so very, very hard for to reinvent herself and and to land on her feet. So I grew up in Charlottesville. We spent most of my time in Charlottesville, despite spending a few years in Manhattan, a few years in St. Louis. I consider myself from Charlottesville, Virginia. My dad is from Talladega, Alabama. My brother lives in Nashville and they sound Southern. So I actually like I identify as being Southern, even though it's questionable about whether Charlottesville is <laughs> truly Southern. I went to school in Pennsylvania at Haverford College, a small liberal arts school, and spent a year abroad at the University of Edinburgh, where I traveled all over Europe from the highlands of Scotland to Morocco from Portugal to the Czech Republic, just went all over the country and had a great time there. But I moved to Chicago for work, wanting to you know, say, I have nothing to offer the world. I have no skills, no experience, no network whatsoever. What do I do? I don't advertising. Didn't want to stay on the East Coast, didn't want to go all the way to the West Coast, sort of pick Chicago. And in Chicago, it was just Leo Burnett. So very uncreatively, I had a job there by January of my senior year of college moved out and pretty quickly met and married a Chicago boy. And now I'm never getting out. My kids are Midwestern. (laughs) They think it's hot when it's north of like 65 degrees. You know, they have a Midwestern accent. John, get in the car. You know, it's just like, we seem so Midwestern, but it's because I met an alpha who's like, this is where we're going to make our family and our home. And I have a pretty good gig at Jelly Vision. So not complaining, but just never what I imagined for myself is that I'd sound as Midwestern as I do. You know, it's funny. I never thought I had an accent and then I went out east. So I want to talk about Haverford a little bit, too, because I went to Middlebury and experienced that same kind of world. But I never thought I sounded I thought I sounded normal until I went out to college on the East Coast and everybody said, what the hell is that accent? And I'm going, what are you talking about? Like people from Boston have an accent. I don't have an accent. And it's that eh, eh. Haverford. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) True, too. (laughs) Happens to the best of us. And uh, yeah, I, and then, then I went to Mississippi and those people were like, what the hell? And I'm thinking, you all have accents. I don't have an accent. And they literally said, like, we can't send you to court because the judges will think, who the hell is this northern guy? So I literally, I knew I couldn't stay in the South to be a lawyer when my first law firm said, we're never sending you to court. I'm like, Yankee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yankee. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. But so Haverford, I'm super curious about this because, you know, I tell a lot of people, I know Haverford, I know Williams College, Swarthmore, all these places. But when I tell people Middlebury, a lot of the times, and particularly in the Midwest, I get blank stares. Now, they always say, like, the people who need to know, know. And that's definitely been the case. But I'm interested in how and why you chose Haverford, what your experience was there. I'm always interested in thinking about the idea between sort of education as a way to expand your mind and learn about things you would never learn versus being pragmatic. I'm going to learn a trade. I'm going to learn something and I'm going to go into accounting and that's what I'm going to do. Um, And I very much feel like liberal arts colleges are about expanding your mind and learning things and doing crazy stuff. And that's partially why I chose sports too. But tell me about Haverford and why you chose that and what you thought about it. 
So I, I think it, it's very much an indication of my parents. I wasn't an independent and autonomous enough being to make an independent choice, which is why I really try not to weigh college when I'm talking to an applicant, because it's like, how much of it was your parents and their expectations versus you choosing your own path? It was not a question growing up if we went into college. It was how elite of a school could we get into? My original plan was to get a JDMD and write public policy for hospitals on what to do with abandoned embryos or around euthanasia, things like that. And so I wanted to get a good liberal arts education. I wanted to go to a grind school, small school, lots of access to professors. And I wanted to spend a year abroad. For a kid who spent most of my time in Charlottesville, Virginia, I wanted to get out. And a full year abroad was important to me. And something like more than 50% of students at these small liberal arts schools all spend a year abroad. So that's what I thought about I didn't understand business or network or a broader curriculum. It's just really like I wanted to study. I wanted to have a school that was good enough to get me into good grad school because I had a lot of grad school in my mind. And really what changed my trajectory was that year in Edinburgh where I mostly studied beer and boys and got behind in pre-med credits, came back uh, after learning more in that year than I learned in all of my other years of school combined about the world, about myself, about people came back and said, I need a fifth year of my bougie New England liberal arts school. And my dad said, that's amazing. How are you paying for it? And when I realized I was off the dole, then began my journey of like, how do I actually contribute something meaningful to the world right now to like pay for rent? And that was the quick, I just got into business then and never looked back. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I knew nothing about these schools and, and I think you've probably found too Although where you live, it's it's a little bit more educated about these, you know, kind of the New England liberal arts type of thing. But I knew nothing about it. My brother actually investigated it. And he went on a tour, an East Coast swing and went to like the standard Cornell, Brown, Columbia. But he stopped on the way at this little school, Williams College. And I remember him calling me and saying, this is the place I'm going to school. I'm like, what the hell are you? T- You're going to a school named after us? I've never even heard of this fucking place. What What is it? And um, he was sold from day one and he came home and then we learned more about it. And my parents said one thing. They always told me, you get into the best school you can possibly go to. We'll find a way to at least pay for part of it. And that's what they did. And so we learned about Williams. My brother went there. Then I went to see him play football. And the first game I ever went to, they lost to a small little school called Middlebury College. And of course, I didn't want to be my brother. So I ended up going to their biggest rival. But it, it really is interesting. I wouldn't have known anything about it. And it's My parents were not about like go to the most elite school, but they were open to that. So then it became a drive for me and my brother to say, I want to go to an elite school. And my parents being open enough to say, we'll figure out how to pay for it, how to help you. We will figure a way to get you there if that's what's going to happen. So I got into University of Virginia where we were in-state and my dad was faculty. Let me say that again, in-state and faculty. I basically could have gone for free. For free. Very, very little money. To the point where my dad said, I will give you a car and a pony if you go to UVA. And I said, no. And it was, it's the kind of thing I didn't understand what I was doing to my dad and that he'd have to work longer before retirement because of the choices I was making, that he was giving me a full ride and had been saving his whole life for school. And that I just was like, how idiotic. I called my dad when I was 25 or 26 years old and I'd been making money and I understood it. And I said, dad, thank you. I didn't understand the investment and sacrifice you made. Now I do. Thank you. And my dad was like, you little turd. I'm <laughs> yeah. glad to hear that. You, you little turd. <laughs> you little shit going to Harvard when you have UVA on a plate. But he's like, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, and he's he's really into like 
the kids making their own determination about where they go to school, but it's not really your determination. I didn't know the world. I mean, I barely left Charlottesville, Virginia. So I do think for me, schooling was very much a factor of my parents expecting elite or wanting elite so badly because my mom just scraped and clawed to get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say I took great advantage of my Middlebury education. I could have worked a lot harder. And it is interesting when I look back, I went to law school and I paid for law school 100% myself. My parents are like, no fucking way. (laughs) It is not happening. We are not taking part in this. And so, and my brother went to med school and did the same thing. And I was like, I mean, I worked so damn hard in law school because it was my dollars. And it was the same thing to my parents. I'm like, I'm, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, I should have taken much greater advantage of this ridiculous opportunity that you helped me get. And that is, I mean, look, hindsight's 2020. I'll live. But I did the same kind of thing. I was like, I'm sorry that B minus average, you know, <laughs> wasn't the best I could have done. But live and learn, right? Yep. Yep. So you get out of Haverford. You had a job because you, had, you realized the importance of money. You came to Chicago. You started at Lee Burnett. How did you transition from Leo Burnett? Did Jelly Vision come next or was there interim steps? No, that was it. I spent um, five and a half years at Leo Burnett and had an unbelievable ride. I was given huge ropes with which to hang myself, just huge opportunities. Got to pitch the CEO of the Kellogg Company when I was 21 years old. And yes, it was a disaster. I was really nervous and spoke way too quickly, but just a ton of opportunity. And I learned that anything can feel interesting or important if you work with people who have curiosity and passion and care about what they're doing. I mean, it was really some great, great people. I spent the first two and a half years uh, spending about $110 million a year getting kids to eat Pop-Tarts and Eggo waffles. And this is before we knew they were poison. Truly, I felt very good about it at the time. (laughs) Now I wouldn't let my kids touch the stuff. And the second um, two years, I spent in a new brand and new business development think tank where we helped a large company figure out what to do from a new product development and M&A perspective. And after watching a large company innovate or try to innovate, I knew I wanted to go from big to small and slow to fast and from stuff you could buy in a grocery store to technology. And I started interviewing because I am not a starter. Uh, I started interviewing, came across a guy named Troy Hanikoff, who's one of Chicago's great connectors and, and entrepreneurial luminaries. Met him for a 45-minute interview that turned into a three-and-a-half-hour debate where he became one of the most important mentors of my life. But one of the things he did is he said, you're not going to work for my startup, I can tell. So let's go get you to meet Jelly Vision. It seems like it really matches what you would like. And I was there three weeks after meeting them. I was like, it was like, I had could not believe this company was in Chicago. It was unbelievable. I love the people there. And I had a kind of a cool experience with my then EVP, executive vice president at Leo Burnett. It was a guy named Clive Serkin. And he said, I heard you're looking. How fucking dare you, Lanet? He's, he's South African. <laughs> so he's like, Lanet, how fucking dare you? And he gave me a piece of paper and he goes, write what your next job description. Wherever you care about travel, wherever, whatever, write it down. Tell me what it is. And I came back two days later and my head was all jelly vision and I couldn't think of anything. He goes, now I'll let you go at peace. And I thought that was such a good move that I, I really got convicted. I don't want to be here anymore. And then he said, all right, I'm at peace. You're going to kill it. And he, I remember him in that meeting telling me, before you know it, Lannert, you're going to be in a meeting where the heads are turning for a final decision. And then the final buck is you and you turn and there's no one to backstop you. And yeah. you're going you're gonna to have a moment of being like, oh, shit but it'll be okay. And I was like, Clive, I'm going in as marketer. I'm like, don't and like, he's like, yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. But just remember that moment. It'll be okay. You've got it. And then 
just a few months later, six months, a year after joining, I became president of the company and it was off to the races from there. So it's like, talk about luck. My career has been, you know, people are like, oh, you know what it's like to have a bad boss. I'm like, no. No, you don't. <laughs> no. no. I know what it's like to have tough bosses. I know what it's like to have bosses with high bars, but I have never worked for somebody cruel or dumb, both of which I think would be incredible bummers. But like, no, I've only worked with smart people who are like, let's go do some stuff, which is great for shaping a career quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. So it was his plan to like basically offer you, I mean, look, I have worked for cruel and dumb. No names will be stated. I've also worked for brilliant and fun and you probably know some of those. But it is amazing what cruel and dumb can do to your own personal confidence and can totally. do to your career path. And I can imagine leaving a place and being berated for leaving, whether or not somebody said, do you have good reason for going or not? It's amazing to me that somebody would do that for you because that's incredibly cool. Because my guess is his well, intent his was, was even, why didn't you come talk to me? I've always had yeah. your back. Why didn't you show me the trust? Right. Of having a conversation with me to see if there's anything I can do to keep you, you knucklehead. No, there's nothing yeah. great. Then let's talk about this opportunity. It's perfect for you. He was a foundational, we have this policy at Jelly Vision called Graceful Leave. It was written by Harry, our founder. But like I lived it with Clive, which is you don't sneak around and give me two weeks of notice. Yeah. Not after we've been ride or die for five years, they have half a decade. That is not what you do. You come and talk to me and say, I'm bored. And yeah. I say, can I get you on board? The answer is no. Amazing. A small tech company, Amanda, chef's kiss. Does it doesn't, doesn't work out? Give me a call. Yeah. This should be... And by the way, we serve... Clive and I are on a board together 20 years later. Right. I joined a board and they were at, needing more people. And I got Clive. Like It's like, it's it, the road is long and windy. Yeah. Clive being Clive and, and treating me that way. It's like, I remember him. And I now he's got a board seat. Yeah. Like one, no, of, one of many he has. But one of them is because of the way he treated me You know, in the 90s. No burn bridges, nothing, just good relationship. It makes me actually think something like that should be actually, I hate to say this, like, but actually a written policy. Like, if you have an opportunity, bring it to us. We'll see if we can match it. If we can't, we will wish you well. But I mean, because the reality is you had, I'm sure, the same concern that everybody else has. You sit there and say, if I tell my boss that I'm considering leaving, I very well might be walked out the door right then, regardless of how cool you think they are it takes a huge leap of faith to say, I'm going to go and tell them there's other stuff I really want to go explore. We just had something come up. A woman in sales enablement said, I want to take time off to spend time with my kids. It's just been craziness. And my, you know, came back from maternity leave and I had like a guppy, but now he's a person. He's like a little baby. So interesting. Now as a toddler, I want to spend some more time with them. And because she didn't give two weeks of notice, because she was around for a while, I actually reached out to her and said, are you really wanting to get out of work? Is it really like, is it just like, what really is going on? And she goes, five days a week is too much. And we ended up structuring a part-time yeah. first ever. And I'm so, my fingers crossed. I hope hope we can make it work. We know it's a pilot, a test. We're going to be honest and hold each other accountable. But like, what if we could just like reinvent work? We're like the five day a week is nonsense potentially. Yes. And we figured out it's a two day a week. And we have this whole way of like, we're going to, you're going to log in Monday. And they're going to be a list of priorities and you bang through as many of them as you can until you log off on Tuesday and then we'll refresh and have it, you know, for you on Monday and just like to see if it works. Yeah. Uh, and it only worked because she sat down and gave us a ton of notice where we had time to get our head straight instead of scrambling to backfill. And I was like, the grace you just showed deserves grace. 
Yeah. Is there anything we could do? And we threaded this needle. I'm so excited to have her talent continuing at Jelly Vision in a way that may work better for her. What if she was really like, I just wanted to quit and I wanted to do it in a nice way and now they're keeping me around. <laughs> yeah, um, I would like, please give me the feedback of who's making you mental. Tell me how I'm making you mental because it is not my intent to wake up on a given day and make anyone mental. Tell, give me the feedback so I can improve. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, you bring up a really good point, which is we've actually already had the discussion. I don't know in my business how it would necessarily work when we have more volume of cases going through the platform, but we've talked about like the four-day work week. It's come up, right? Because it's kind of lunacy. And I can think of the world, you know, when I was truly a law firm lawyer and working like seven days a week, right? There was no off time. How dare you think you can have a life? But even a five-day work week, you think of how quickly the weekend goes and how much little time you actually have to rebuild yourself and get ready for the next week. There is, I mean, you can see a world and it's obviously in, in Europe, it's starting to happen where four and three would make a lot more sense. Now, then does it become three and four and go down the slippery slope? I don't know. Well, there's legislation now in California to mandate a four-day work week for all employees of large companies. So what we've done an interim step, which is just like, we're all trapped at home. The energy is very different. So we implemented 12 self-care days. And the reason why we did it, I'm sitting there, I was like, why are weekends so much better than vacations where you come back and you're just like, it's an avalanche and people have been waiting for you. And it's like, oh, you're just like digging out is so stressful that like the residual effect of vacation has gone almost immediately. Whereas like weekends, you come back, it's because everybody's off. So 12 times a year, the second Friday, typically of every month, we shut down. So it's a three-day weekend for everybody all at once. We just talk to people. Four-day weekends are very popular. We can't get done what we need to get done. And what yeah. would happen is there are, they're just functions. They're very large functions of Jellyvision that would be crunched. They wouldn't get to enjoy it. We would make their days unbearable, you know? So we're just like, all right, let's do it so we can all partake, you know, and have the sort of like team spirit of a quiet day a month. And some people can't take it off, but they have quieter days because most people are off. And, you know, we're just trying to find ways to relax and recharge because weekends are wonderful. No matter how much I like my job, I'm still like, Friday, Friday, you know? <laughs> No, I'm with you. We actually did. We didn't do 12 days, but what we did is we tacked on an additional day to any three-day weekend. Yeah. So if the holiday is like Memorial Day on a Monday, then you get the Friday off to make it a four-day weekend. And then did some other holidays that, you know, like, I don't, we didn't do Casimir Pulaski Day, but, you know, it's things like that. We add those on and just said, look, this is a day that some people have off. Not everybody has it off. We have it off, right? Just to give, because you're right. I mean, I can't remember the last time I took a week-long or a two-week-long vacation. And the entire time, the last time I did it, all I was worried about what, what was going to happen when I got back. Like, what was I going to walk into? And, and that fear makes it very less relaxing. <laughs> but you need to take time off. You need yeah. to actually unplug because one, your team will step up and learn that they can, in fact, survive without you and they'll stretch and grow. One of the best things that ever happened to my chief of staff's career is I went on maternity leave and nothing yeah. broke. And she got all this new confidence and all this new exposure and just like really, really grew a ton. The second thing is people are watching you. Everybody knows burnout is real and taking time off is good for productivity. So yeah. if you don't take time off and people will think they can't really take time off. So I don't mean to like turn this into a Colin shaming podcast, but you, <laughs> like, you, you got to lead by example and show the world doesn't end if you take a little time off just to try to help avoid burnout. Yeah, no. And that's what I'm doing now. It's it, it and it is interesting. We've also done, you know, we have the flexible vacation yep. policy and all that good stuff, but we took it a step further, which is you know what? If you need to take a day on a Wednesday, don't go ask everybody for permission to do that. We're all adults. We assume that you'll get your work done. Tell us that Wednesday, like, hey, I've got to go do X, Y, Z. I'm not going to be here today. That's fine. Like, 
we're adults, we'll figure it out. And, you know, it's funny, this is something that very few people know about me, but it's, but I do therapy, nothing wrong with that at all. Right. Uh, and what I learned through therapy is always being open to the fact that this is not an emergency. What we do, it is not an emergency. My brother's an emergency room doctor. That's an emergency, yes. right? Somebody comes rolling in and it's the ability to keep that in your mind that what we do, nothing, it's important. It's very good stuff. I'm excited about it, but nobody lives or dies depending on the things that happen in our businesses. I, I have a metaphor for you though. I have a metaphor. It's like you are in a startup and what startups are like rocket ships, right? And rocket ships are incredibly aspirational. Everybody goes to Cape Canaveral or whatever, and they sit on the roof of their RV and they watch the rocket. Why? Because what they're doing is really cool. They're trying yeah. to go to outer space and the stakes are high because they may fail and it may blow up. So everyone thinks about the external spectator sport of startups, AKA rocket ships, and nobody realizes the perspective of the astronaut. They're sitting in 80 pounds of gear with people screaming into their ears and a nuclear-sized explosion 50 feet from their head. Being an astronaut in the rocket ship of startup, it does not feel pleasant or safe or benign. Yep. And growth is never linear. It's up and down and zig and zag. Over time, the, the pattern kind of becomes linear, but it's just like highs and lows. You can have such profound highs and lows. I remember being like in 30-minute meetings where I was like, we're going to change the world. No, we're going to completely die. I mean, like within 30 minutes, it's like these super highs and lows. And to me, it's not that like you get rid of the highs and lows as you grow and get more solvent and scale. They just become much further out. So it might be over a week you have a high and a low or a month you have a high and a low, but it's just not like 17 peaks and valleys every day. Uh, so it's a lot. It's just calmer. You sleep better. All yes. those kinds of things kick in. Yeah. There's been multiple people who have said, you know, there's a reason that people don't do startups. There's a reason more people don't do startups because it, it is funny from the outside. You get a lot of people who say, oh, you started your own business. That must be so exciting. And the reaction to that isn't, yes, it is. Uh, the reaction is like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Yeah. Um, and the advice I've always been given is there's a reason a lot of people don't, most people don't do startups because it's really fucking hard. Yeah. And I think people see the, the success stories and say, oh my God, it must be great. The success stories are what, 5% of the businesses that ever make it? And you know, having been on a startup that completely imploded outcome, you just never know what you're gonna get. And obviously you add in like elements of fraud and all sorts of different things, that becomes a whole other animal. But even when you're doing everything the right way, it's kind of like, you know, you wanna celebrate the big wins and say, this is a fantastic moment. At the same time, you're like, shit, what bad is coming down the pipeline? Because Something probably is, and it really is. It's complete and utter roller coaster. It's one percent of businesses make it to ten years and ten million dollars. Yeah, it's amazing. That's one percent. So yeah, I mean, it's thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm even more scared. But you know, I think you know. I also had Dan Melnick, who is our CTO at Reverb. He also gave me a really good piece of advice. He said, "I said, Dan, this is frightening, right? Because even maybe it's ninety percent of businesses even make it to two years or something like that." And I said that failure rate's so high. And he said, Colin, 90% of businesses don't launch. 90% of businesses never get a customer. 90% of businesses don't raise a dollar. He's like, you've stepped over so many of these hurdles that kill businesses. Like start thinking about the potential that you might make it because you're past the part of, you're not, it's never going to happen. But that doesn't make it less scary. It's like you said, it's, <laughs> I'm, I am going to die. Can my, I've actually thought, can my body continue to take this? Because the level of stress between the pandemic and you know all these different things, can my body continue to function at this level? 
I well, don't let's know. Have a little group therapy around that. I mean, I the last two years for everyone have been so problematic from worrying about people's mental health to worrying profoundly about their physical health to having social injustice front and center of every company agenda and curriculum. And you know that work plays a role in mental health. It plays a role in social injustice and justice. It just does. But you can't fix things fast enough. And it's like, like, hey, people, can you please just do your job around benefits engagement today, (laughs) even though the world is burning down around us? Like, do we even yep. ask people to do work today? It has been incredibly tough. You think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you as a leader, you're like, you take care of the people so they can take care of everything else. You're like, everyone's not okay. And I talked to this, uh, uh, one of our customers and he said, he's a very senior HR executive at a very large company. And he said, you know, really the hard work we're doing is understanding our complicity and our employees' lack of mental health. Yeah. And I was like, have you told your employees, you you think like that? Because I believe you. I know this guy. His first name is Jake. He's an unbelievable leader. I know he means it. They are examining how does their schedule, their workload, their benefits, their support, their policies, how do they contribute to a lack of mental wellness in their employees so they can change it and do a better job? I was like, that is so progressive and caring. I don't know that many companies actually say those words out loud and then do the work of unwinding the social constructs that aren't helpful at work. And so as a leader, you just feel incredibly complicit and there's only so much you can directly control. Yeah. Yeah, It's been a tough two years, Colin. Oh my God. The, I mean, when all the the crazy shit was happening and the riots and stuff, and I I was at Reaver, right? So the, the business hadn't started, but I just remember thinking on a daily basis, how can we possibly do what the business does while also addressing all these things that our employees are concerned about and doing things that, you know, are proactive and help the world to address that too. And I just remember thinking, I don't, I don't know how we do this. This is next level, right? Because we had an employee who couldn't sleep because the riots kept her up till three or four in the morning for several nights in a row. And I was like, okay, okay, it's time to not work. It's just, it's everything can wait. This, this is like everything can wait. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. We had that too. We had people who were experiencing this. I mean, I remember a night that we had people riding through our neighborhood throwing Molotov cocktails in garbage cans. And like, how am I supposed to go to sleep? Because literally I had police on my lawn crawling through my yard and things like that. And I live in a good neighborhood in Chicago, right? So I'm not sitting here complaining about my situation. We had employees who live in far worse neighborhoods with much worse things going on. And the same thing, they're coming to work and it's like, they can't think because they don't want their house to be destroyed when they get home. But then also, how do you as a business address those things publicly with also not taking too big a stance in one direction or the other. And then you have to run the business to keep it going because at the end of the day, everybody needs paychecks and benefits. I mean, I feel grateful that we've made it to the point that we have, to be honest. And it's not like we're out of the woods, but I feel significantly better than now than I did a year and a half ago where I was, and and that's sad because now I'm in a startup and there's a lot more stress associated with it. But I still just remember thinking, how are we ever going to get out of this? What like, and I remember having the thoughts too, what if this pandemic no, never goes away? What if this doesn't end? What if we never cure this? Yeah, it was been a hard two years. <laughs> yes, very long. I'm actually 26. People can't see, but I really have been aged a lot over the last couple of years. You know, it's really sad. I've st- I used to get carded still when I would go into like a bar or restaurant, I'd order a drink and people would say, oh, let's see your ID. No, that's gone. There's enough gray in my hair and beard. People are like, and I've said, you know, I used to get carded. They're like, no, you're, you've got so much gray. I don't, oh, God damn it. <laughs> 
boo. Let's do the vanity card. I used to be like, are you serious? Don't card me. I'm just a mom buying wine. And now I'm like, please card me. Please card me. Please card me. I feel so much better. So let's just talk about a little bit about like your leadership style. I mean, this it comes out in everything that you've been talking about. And it's hard to say, do you have a leadership style? It's kind of a ridiculous question. But maybe you have a This is an obvious question. And I get asked a lot by the candidates when I'm interviewing them. And I wish I were more comfortable or more self-aware to answer this really well. And it's like, I'm direct. I'm an ideas person. I fling around ideas like food for thought. I study a lot about business leadership benefits, what we do a lot. And if I read an interesting article, I want other people to read it just to have food for thought. I am not particularly interested in how I am a super delegator, probably to my own detriment or to the business's detriment. Like I'm not like holding accountability or saying this is the best road. It's like, once we agree on what I give it to the leaders to take care of the how my absolutes are trust and integrity. I cannot function when I don't trust people. It's not about being perfect. Failure happens. It's about, do you own it? Do you admit it? Are you honest about it? Do you try hard? And do you do what you say you're going to do without being watched? Yep. And do you do what's right, not what's legal or what's easy? So that, you know, I think about like leaderships, true leader, your goals are you have to set a vision. You have to attract and motivate the best people you can. And the way I describe my job is I take care of the people, my team, so they can take care of everything else. And then I make sure we don't run out of money. And that's the job of leadership. I'm not trying to say like, I'm Six Sigma and I'm going to tell you the way to do things. It's I, I'm not good at it. I don't like it. I would rather be like, where are we going next? and sort of focus on ideas and and crafting a vision. It's really interesting you talk about trust and responsibility. And this is something, if there's anybody listening who's just entering their career, this is a fantastic thing that I learned very, very early on. And that's if you own decisions, you completely disarm somebody's ability to attack you. And by that, I mean, if you fuck something up and you sit there and try to explain and explain and explain and explain, you sit there for 45 minutes trying to attribute it to somebody else or say, here's why I did this and blah, blah, blah that person has 45 minutes to attack you because they're saying you still did something wrong, but you haven't owned up to it and you haven't decided how to fix it. And I learned if you fuck up and you say, I fucked up, I'm going to fix it. That person has nothing to say, right? So there's pressure. This is easier if there's a visual, but imagine two forces pushing. Okay. That's what happens when you defend. If you just apologize, you're laying flat and that pushing force is standing up against you over. And if they go down and lay on top of you, they're being a maniac. They're being wrong. Most nice people will be like, okay, let me help you stand up and then we can move forward together. But like a good apology, a good, a a heartfelt good apology. There's a lot of narrative about telling women to apologize less. Stop saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm like, no, I apologize all the time because mistakes happen and I, I could be better in any given moment. But then I move forward. Like, sorry, and then let's move forward. I'm all about it. A good apology. It did not go to plan. I'm sorry. This is what I learned. This is what I'm going to do better next time. Yeah. And I'll try and fix it. Unfortunately, I'll try to make it right. This is the best I can do this. Do you have ideas that are better to make it right? I want to make it right. Yeah. That analogy is perfect because you're absolutely right. But I still see it. There's so many people who just want to fight that battle. Well, here's why I wasn't wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. It's not okay to not admit that you were wrong. It's not okay to try to convince people you were right when it's clear. Yeah, or do nothing about it. My, my thing is inaction after a mistake. It's like, please just do something. Like it's right here. The elephant's in the room. Name it. The elephant is named Fred. We all love <laughs> elephants. Here's Fred, the elephant of something that's not working. What do we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I'll ask some, they could be softballs or maybe they're not. What do you love about what you do? But more importantly, what do you hate about what you do? 
I love the people. I yep. love the problem. I love that when we do our jobs well, we're genuinely being helpful and that we do the right thing. Uh, what do I hate about it? Not much of anything. Like truly, when I think, do I hate? I wouldn't be here as long as I've been here if I hated it. Um, I hate letting people down. Yeah. I hate that everything takes too long. It makes me mental when we're not living to our potential. I don't know if that arises to the word of hate, but I, I do get frustrated that everything seems to take too long. And then it's not hate, but just worry to you know what we've already talked about. The last two years of upheaval and stress, I hate that I can't fix the problems of the world and they lay at the doorstep of our people. When I think my job is to take care of the people so they can take care of everything else, I do believe my people have been unwell and felt unsafe and have been unhealthy in a way that bother me. And I know that there's a work-life balance, but like I have hated how little I could control over the last two years. Yeah. Where like, I don't know what's going to happen. I I mean, I stood up in front of the company and said, I don't know what's going to happen. Yep. Here's what I do know. Here's what I can control, but there's an awful lot I can't. So there you go. That was not my favorite moment. I look back on that too. And I I get back to that thing of saying, people saying, oh, we're going to come up with a vaccine, right? You know, it's all going to be okay. I don't know. Like, I don't know. All this strife is going to end and everything's going to be okay. I don't know. But you almost have to sit in a position like then I was obviously an executive and not, it wasn't my own company, but it was sitting in that position. Everybody's coming to you and looking for you to be the person that says it's going to be okay. And it's interesting. I went to a Jeffersonian dinner, my first Jeffersonian dinner that was run by Pete Cadence, who I love, love Pete. And um, Richard Edelman spoke at it. And he said that right now we're in a situation where people don't trust the media and they don't trust government at all. They don't believe anything that the government's telling them. They don't believe anything that they're learning through the media. So the place that they're going for answers is work. That's the place that has the highest level of trust, which adds an additional layer of pressure onto us when people look at you and say, well, if you say something, I'm going to believe it, and then I'm going to trust it. And if you're wrong, then maybe I'm not going to trust you. How does the great resignation factor into that? Like people aren't staying put because of this trust. Like how do you have profound trust where the one place I go for a single source of truth is work, but yet 40% of Americans are going to quit this year? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that probably, I I don't know. I I mean, I could say a million things about what I think that comes from. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity for you to go places. There's a much greater excuse to just say, I couldn't take it, I had to leave. I can work remotely. I can do all these different things. I don't know the answer, but- I just felt like this an additional round of like overwhelming pressure to say, well, now what we're saying is what people believe is truth because they they don't believe what's being said on CNN. They don't believe what the mayor is telling them. They don't believe what the president's telling them. Like, holy shit, <laughs> this is an additional layer of stuff that I didn't sign up for, but you have to own it. You have to own it. But what I didn't get to ask, what I really wanted to ask is, is I wanted to say, all right, well, if everybody that works under us is wondering what we're going to say, where the hell are we supposed to find information? If we can't trust the government and we can't trust the media, where am I going to learn shit from? <laughs> what am I supposed to tell people? What's my source of truth? Call um, other chairmen and founders. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. what, do you, what do you think is going to happen? Help, help me. <laughs> all right. I, I want to ask a Chicago-specific question because I know your leadership style and you are hugely revered in this community. Who in Chicago do you see and say, that's an unbelievable CEO? And why is it that you think that about them? Oh my gosh, there's so, so many. But like, let's take just Justin from Sprout Social. Yep. That business has grown and grown and grown. It's gone through an IPO 
and it's still beloved by employees. They've never taken their eye off the ball of employees first, customers second, the market third, and they've created huge value throughout. I think those executives around the table are some of the best to a T that I've met in their functional roles. Really, really smart and just heads down, grinding, don't buy into fanfare or fluffery. Like they just take care of each other and they take care of the business and they take care of their people. I think uh, Jason from Active Campaign, I also think is like an undersung hero. What an incredible business he founded and bootstrapped. And he's really getting into angel investing and giving back now. And I think that that company, when it goes public, is going to spawn a bunch of millionaires who are going to become the next founders that really buoy up the Chicago ecosystem. I think he's doing a great job. I think uh, Suzanne Muchin, who's the founder and CEO of Bonfire, a startup, she's also a clinical professor at Kellogg. She's just so smart and thoughtful and like changing the world day by day. I mean, there's so many CEOs I respect and admire. And the thing I love about Chicago is you can call any of them. Like I reached out to, I was sitting next to Chris Gladwin, the founder of uh, Clever Safe. The night it was announced, his company had sold from a billion dollars. Like I happened to be sitting at a dinner next to him. He was stuck. And I turned to him and I said, would you please sometime tell me your story? And he's like, absolutely. I have to go save the turtles first, which is not a euphemism. He really went to a Caribbean island and saved turtles. And then he took a divvy bike to a lunch place and told me so generously the trials and tribulations, et cetera. So this guy did it. He built a business, sold a business, and exited for over a billion dollars. Unbelievable accomplishment. Yet he tells a story very openly about for his Series D, he got 105 no's in a row and wow. thought the business was going to fail before 106 said yes. And it's like to get that kind of perspective on like how hard it always is, like nothing's ever easy. It's not that you get anything other than perspective and fire in the belly. You're like, thank you. My bad days may be in a path to a very, very good day where you get to call everybody and tell them you got the job done. But anybody is accessible in Chicago. Like you could call anybody and they'd be like, sure, if I can be helpful, I will be, which is what I love about this tech community. All boats are raised by the tide, right? Anyone's success is still everyone's success. Yeah. And I mean, that's such an important thing too, because we've had some, I mean, God, I was on the biggest sinking ship and it gives Chicago a black eye, right? If, If everybody doesn't lift each other up, I was still so fortunate. You talk about luck. Like I got off that, I got off the Titanic and hopped on at the time. David Call tells me, I have no idea why it's just, we're just a little music startup. Why would you want to come from that to this? The world pushes you in interesting directions, right? And hell, then I learned most of what I know from him, who, I mean, you talk about great Chicago CEOs, although he's in California a lot right now, but enjoying yeah, that, I didn't mention him because he seems like he's living like the boho California life. But <laughs> David, David yeah. Call is one of the serial greatest. Not the greats, the greatest. And he's smart and he's funny and he's interesting. I really, really like the guy and I really, really respect him. Look what he's done. Company after company. Unbelievable tear. Yeah. And it's funny. He can be very tough, right? But the one thing I always say about him, people are like, what's it like to work for David? And it's certainly not for everybody. But he knows everything about you, your family. He actually gives a shit about you. It's not just the fact that you're here to help him make money. And you, you always see that through the tough times. You're like, you, know, you can scream at you for a while and then say, how's Grayson doing? <laughs> like, it has to be because businessing is a team sport. Yep. No single person is ever going to create a great outcome or even a great business. It's always a team sport. Like, yep. it just is. Yeah. No, 100%. All right. Well, we've made it to the lightning round and I want to make sure I don't go too long for you. 
So this, I'm gonna ask you some quick questions. You basically, a sentence, you just gotta think of what's coming off the top of your head, all right? So favorite movie and why? Shawshank Redemption, because it is just a beautiful, beautiful story about humans being human, or best in show, because there's that line, Jennifer Coolidge, we both like soup and can talk or not talk for hours. <laughs> like best in show, maybe. I don't know. No, that's, I mean, it, it's amazing. I think of Shawshank and you think that's a Stephen King book. And people always just think he writes horror novels. And But it's beautiful. It is. Beautiful it really movie. is. Um, favorite book and why? That's tough because I read a lot, but I'm going to go with A Little Life by Hanya Yana Gihara. Because it's a book I it made me cry. I wept out loud. I've never felt it's not a happy book. It's not yeah. an, an enjoyable book, but it is a, a thing of such profound beauty and realness. I'm going to go with that, or I'll go with um, Ava's Man and Oliver But the Shoutin' by Rick Bragg, which my dad sent me those books. Um, and it was kind of like his love language to me it, memoirs from a guy in the South, and sort of was like my dad explaining how he grew up and his grandfather and things like that. So, probably those are some books that really mean a lot to me. All right. This one's more difficult. Your favorite person and why? Yeah, I'm boring. I'd love to be like, oh, it's like Oprah, but it's really my favorite person is my sister. I mean, outside of my nuclear family, it's my sister. And it's simply because this woman makes me laugh every time I talk to her. Every single time I laugh out loud. She's the funniest person I know. That's pretty good. All right. In 10 years, you'll be doing what? <laughs> being, being grateful. That's a good one. Being happy, being healthy and being codependent with my dog. Those are my only absolutes. All right. You can insert the number here. It doesn't matter because I think the number is different for anybody. But if somebody gave you, handed you right now, like I have, let's say it's $10 million, right? Maybe it could be more, it could be less. If they just handed to you and said, here you go, are you retiring? Is that it? Is that the end of the game? Never. No. But I know why. It's not that there's not enough money. It's I am afraid of less. Right now, you can do whatever you want to do, and then you get a paycheck, and it comes, and it fills up, and you can take risks and go on trips and things like that. There is not a nest egg big enough for me to not be afraid of it's now less. As irrational as that is, as <laughs> irrational as that is, I am afraid of less. It's never enough as long as it's becoming less. It's not enough if it's becoming less. So I haven't wrapped my head around that and I don't know what it means for my retirement, but there is no number that would make me not work right now. I think that makes it actually makes a ton of sense because you think even if you had $10 million, you could spend that. I don't know how I would do it, but you could. And I can actually imagine a world where that's sitting in your bank account and you watch it dwindle and start to sweat the fact that it's dwindling. Uh, you probably made some colossal mistakes if that's happening, but it, it doesn't really matter. I can. That's actually a really interesting explanation for it. All right. The most important one. What is the single most important trait for a person to have? For a person to have? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, I love a lot of different people who have a lot of different personality traits. I think I'm supposed to say like a sense of humor or smarts or being incisive or something like that, but I'll just say a sense of humanity, of caring. And I'm going to tie it back to something I always say, which is the most forgotten fact in business is that we're all human. Yeah. Companies don't buy from companies. People buy from people. Companies don't innovate. People innovate. Companies don't litigate. People litigate. Yep. And I just like people who can really, really go through life seeing and thinking and caring and having compassion and consideration, just consideration for the people around them. Those are my favorite kind of people. That's damn good. Well, that's it. Number one, you were completely wrong about something. This was incredibly fucking interesting. <laughs>
No, this really was, but I knew it would be with you because you're insightful, you're intelligent, you, you're fun. The tee up was like the most amazing or exciting thing. And I, there's one interesting thing I did. I'll lose my final thing. My one interesting thing is when I was very young in my life, it was 11 o'clock at night. We're sitting in a bar in Chicago. I was with my soon to be husband. And somebody says, you know what? Tomorrow's the Derby, the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. And I'm not the one who said we should go. Someone else said we should go. And I was like, we should go. (laughs) And this is the day and age before cell phones. Eight people left a bar at 11 o'clock at night to drive all night to the Kentucky Derby. My car kept going, don't bail, don't bail. We get in the car, we go. The other car, don't bail. We find each other in the middle of the rainy infield at the Kentucky Derby. I'm wearing a garbage bag because it's raining. I mean, it's like, Total melee, but it was so exciting. It was before cell phones and everybody made it where the night before we're at a bar and the next day we're at the Kentucky Derby. And that was the night I fell asleep in the spaghetti bowl restaurant because it was a very <laughs> long day. But it's like, I don't, I don't often spontaneously go to the Kentucky Derby, but I truly once upon a time did. That's phenomenal. I'll give you one completely spontaneous thing I did. And I'm grateful to this day I did it because I was out one night, Leslie, and we're out with a group of friends who said, what should we do tonight? And I said, I wonder if there's any concerts going on. And so Soundgarden was playing at UIC. So we hopped in a cab, drove to the UIC pavilion, said, are there any tickets left? They're like, yeah, we have a few. So we bought the tickets, saw Soundgarden. I literally couldn't hear for two days. We were right in front of the speakers, like my ears were ringing and stuff. But I saw Soundgarden before Chris Cornell died. And I saw the Grateful Dead before Jerry Garcia died. And like, I don't want to keep seeing bands before people die. But had we not been spontaneous that night, I never would have seen Chris Cornell, who literally the day he died is one of the few days I've ever cried. Um, not 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 few days I've ever cried, but I don't usually cry about some celebrity dying. But he was such a piece of my childhood and meant so much to me that I'm like, thank God we that one night. Like, otherwise, I would have missed Soundgarden. So. I saw Tom Petty's last show at Wrigleyville. I stood in the rain for his last show. And he was so talented. He was so talented that at one point I turned to my husband and I was like, he's hot, right? He's like, no, that's just talent. (laughs) 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 He's so talented. You're starting to think he's good looking. No, that's just real rock star talent. I'm like, this guy is so talented. (laughs) He's hot. Yeah, I don't think anyway, top, anybody Thank you ever for said. having me. Thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Of course. No, thank you for coming on. So everybody, once again, Amanda Lannert, CEO of Jelly Vision, hugely appreciate you coming on. And hopefully everybody gets to meet you in person because it's better in person than on a podcast. Thanks, Amanda.